Well, good morning once again. And uh, this morning, we're going to be uh, continuing our series in the Beatitudes. And this morning, it is on mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Before I get started, I just want to kind of acknowledge this is, this is a tough subject. We've all experienced mourning in our lives. And so this message and the things that we speak about this morning may bring up for you some difficult emotions. They certainly did for me as I was writing this message this morning, and mourning is deeply personal. And it can certainly be a challenge, and how we grieve is, uh, says a lot, and So this morning as we move through this message, I just want us to be aware of that. And no matter where you are, no matter what you've experienced, God has something for you in his word this morning. And so I just want to be reminded of of that. I want to start off by sharing a, a bit of a story. In July of 1996, just about six weeks before Tracy and I were to get married, I was doing a landscaping job over in Troy when Tracy pulled up in her car. This wasn't terribly unusual. I was doing landscaping as well as being a paramedic, and Tracy would often show up at these job sites to bring lunch or to bring something to drink or just to check out what it was that we were doing at the time. But this visit turned out to be a little bit different. She told me that my parents had been trying to call me and my cell phone was in the truck, and so they had reached out to Tracy. My grandfather, who lived in Florida, had gone with his new wife to see the Olympic torch make its way on its final journey from Greece to Atlanta, where the Summer Olympics were soon to be held. As he was crossing the street to find a better location for them to be able to see the torch pass by, he was struck by a motorcycle cop who was doing crowd control. My grandfather had received very serious injuries and was rushed to the trauma center. My father had already made arrangements and was on his way to the airport to go to be by his father's side, where I followed just a day later. At the hospital, I was able to go into the ICU and visit with my grandfather. He was broken and he was swollen, and there were tubes that were just coming out of every, nearly every part of his body. Being a paramedic, I knew that it was clear that my grandfather was not going to survive this event. This was going to be my last time seeing my grandpa alive. Just days prior, I had looked over our seating chart with an expectancy of my grandfather joining us at our wedding, and I was very excited for the place of honor that he was going to be sitting. He was the last remaining member of that generation on both my mother's and my father's side, my only remaining grandparent. And so in the ICU, I said my goodbyes 
having told him how much I loved him and appreciated him and how I was proud to be an Eckstein, his grandson. My grandparents had lived across the street, as I've shared with you before. We spent a lot of time with them, often going over there for dinner to grab a cookie out of their freezer. They taught us how to play cards, and my grandfather taught my brothers and I how to play golf, really more the etiquette of golf. He was a big rule follower, me not so much, so we didn't get along quite as well in the golf course. My grandfather died that next day. And so just five weeks before our wedding, Tracy and I stood at the Levine Memorial Chapel in Albany and I eulogized my grandfather. And we laid him to rest in the Bethlehem Cemetery in Loudonville. That's a tough story for me to tell and a tough story for us to start off this morning with. But I wanted to share that before we pray and see what God's word has to say about mourning. So let's pray. Father God, I am sure that as I share the story of my grandfather, the Father flooding through each and every one of the minds who are here, Lord, that they are going through their own experience of loss and grief, pain and anguish, Lord. And Father, I just ask that you would show up here big time with us. For Father, as we go through these times of mourning, you promise that he will bring comfort. And so Father, may comfort come forth this morning. May we receive your comfort as a gift, a gift of the blessing of being in relationship with you. I ask, Father, that the words that I would speak this morning are not my words, but are truly yours. I know, Father, that this message, that this part of Scripture, Father, it can bring up much for many people. And so I just ask that our minds would be clear, that we would hear from you, and that, Father, there would be just a word, there would be a a challenge, there would be a question that is posed. There's something here this morning for each and every one of us, and so I just ask, Father, that you would do only what you are capable of doing. May our ears hear, may our eyes see, may our hearts be soft, Father, and may we, through this, Lord, understand that you are a God who is in it with us, and that you are a God who's leading us through it to what you offer, and that is comfort. And so, Father, I thank you, and I praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So last week, Chris started us off in the Beatitudes, and didn't Chris do a great job? That was really awesome. Thank you, Chris. And uh, he started us off with an understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit, how God blesses those who come to Christ spiritually bankrupt as beggars. Chris also reminded us that we come to Christ with this attitude, this attitude of being or having this be attitude of being poor in spirit, we receive, we inherit the kingdom of God. That is what it means to be saved and to be born again. 
And if the kingdom of heaven is ours, then we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. We are called to live in the freedom that is imputed upon us as brothers and sisters of Christ, as co-heirs of that kingdom. We aren't supposed to live a life as poor in spirit, broken and destitute, but in the abundance of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Does this mean that we don't sin? Of course not. But for those who are citizens of his kingdom, sin isn't a way of life. It is a reminder of our need for grace as we humbly go to the king, our source of sustenance. He is our daily bread. If you missed that message, then I would ask that you please go to our website and watch it. It's important because the Beatitudes are progressive, meaning they build upon one another. So all of these messages, they will tie together, and they will, you will see, as, as Chris shared, this is a roadmap of how we are to live as citizens. And as we continue this morning, we are going to move into Matthew 5.4 for the second attitude as Jesus tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's Matthew 5, 4. Following my grandfather's funeral, we sat Shiva at my parents' house. Shiva is derived from the word Sheva, which means seven, signifying the seven days of the typical Jewish mourning period. And its primary purpose is to provide a time for spiritual and emotional healing where mourners join together to focus on their grief and to remember their loved one. I do think that Shiva could also refer to overeating, as there's something about Jews and food and death that seem to all go together that I can't really fully explain. But what I can explain is the importance of grieving, which is why I find great, great peace in Jesus sharing this truth with us. So let's look at mourning, which we see in the first half of Matthew 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn. So the first obvious question that we must ask here is, what does it mean to mourn? Now this isn't a trick question, and I really don't think that Jesus intends for us to have to seek after an understanding and a meaning for this. The Greek word that's used here is pentheo, which means to mourn. It also means lament and wail or grieve. It's a heartfelt sense of profound loss. Our grief and mourning produces a deeply emotional and oftentimes complicated response. Perhaps my favorite verse in the entire New Testament is found in John 11.35. Jesus wept. Well, this is one of my favorite verses, not only because I'm not particularly good at memorizing Scripture, and this one's fairly easy for me, but because there is perhaps no other verse in which I see the fully human part of Jesus on display more. The context of this verse is remarkable. As Mary and Martha had sent words to Jesus, word to Jesus about their brother Lazarus, saying to Jesus, the one that you love is ill. What's interesting is that instead of rushing to be with his friend and to heal him, as Jesus healed so many, the scriptures tell us that Jesus stayed another two days in the place that he was. 
By the time that Jesus and his disciples had made it back, Lazarus had been dead for four days. At that point, we pick up in John, uh, in, uh, in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where are you? Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and he wept. And so it begs the question, did Jesus weep over Lazarus' death? Was he grieving not being there for his friend and his sisters? Did he have guilt that he didn't come right away? The answer to all those questions is clearly no. Referring to Lazarus being ill, Jesus says back in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then again in verse 14 says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let us go to him. So if Jesus was not weeping over the loss of his friend, why was he weeping? It is clear from these passages that Jesus saw his friends in distress and he wept with them. He did not weep for them. He wept with them. Jesus entered the pain and the anguish of his friends, and he was moved to be with them in their suffering. He mourned with them. I want to take a look at another example of mourning this time in the book of Romans, as Paul speaks about his fellow Jews, we find this in Romans 9, 1 through 3. As Paul speaking, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In this remarkable passage, Paul is so grieved in his spirit that his fellow Jews haven't recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, that they have come to faith, that he would be willing to give up his own faith if it were possible, if it meant eternal life for his brothers his kinsmen. And what's incredible here in this scripture is that Paul's grief over his fellow Jews does not seem to be tied to a specific person or a group of people, as we saw in the case with Jesus and Lazarus. What I find noteworthy in both of these cases, in Jesus and Paul's mourning and grief, is that the focus of their grief is not on themselves. And this is why it's important for us to see the Beatitudes as a progressive work. And again, I mean progressive as in sequential truth being opened one step at a time as building blocks. And so what I mean here is that mourning 
the second beatitude requires the first beatitude of being poor in spirit. As we learned last week, we need to recognize our spiritual brokenness and need for a Savior in order for us to mourn, as Jesus tells us here. I'd like to return to my grandfather's death for just a moment. When he died, I felt bad. I was certainly sad. But if I were really to be honest with myself and with all of you, I was sad for me. I was sad that he wasn't going to be able to make it to my wedding. I hadn't yet come to Christ at that point, and so life was still very much all about me. After Tracy and I had come to faith, we sat with Pastor JJ to discuss God's plan for Israel and how we should really think about my family being Jewish and not wanting to hear the gospel. Honestly, I was even in that meeting with a conflicted heart. I had been hurt by how they had treated me after I came to Christ. I had wanted them to come to Christ because, honestly, I thought that it would make my life easier. I could couch it in terms of my desire for them to have an eternity secure with Christ, but I was still thinking about me. As the discussion continued, seemingly out of nowhere, J.J. stopped and just looked at me and said that he believed that he had a word from the Lord for me. He looked at me in the eyes and simply said that I needed to forgive my father. I was absolutely stunned and honestly hadn't considered that I hadn't forgiven him or, or even that I needed to forgive him for something. But I knew J.J. and I trusted what he was saying and I took what he had said and I went to the Lord in prayer and I searched the scriptures. And in short order, I, the Lord revealed my heart of unforgiveness, bad expectation and resentments. I brought that sin to the cross, poor in spirit, and asked God to forgive me as I forgave my father. It had become clear that it wasn't about any specific act of omission or commission that I needed to forgive my father for. I didn't have to make a list of all the things that I had been hurt by so that I could ceremonially burn it or nail it to a cross. What the, what the Lord revealed to me was what grieved him about my father and I. And what the Lord had revealed to me was that he was grieved by the brokenness of our relationship. It didn't matter what my father did or didn't do or what my perception was of what may or may not have happened. What mattered was that it resulted in a broken relationship. And my heart had hurt for the loss of that relationship for me and for him. My being poor in spirit, which drove me to seeking and which drove me to seeking and offering forgiveness, finally allowed me to grieve what was really worth grieving, the loss of relationship. And what was amazing was at that moment, I was able to recognize my father's broken relationship with my grandfather. And I mourned for the pain in that relationship as well. 
about 14 years ago, I was able to tell my father that I had forgiven him and that I had sought God's forgiveness for the sin of unforgiveness towards him. In doing so, I encouraged my father to think about how his broken relationship with his father had led to unforgiveness that extended all the way through the grave. I share this because mourning requires being poor in spirit. My father hasn't come to the place of recognizing that he is spiritually destitute. Therefore, he hasn't surrendered to Christ and become a citizen of his kingdom. And this prevents him from truly mourning that which breaks God's heart. He can't mourn his own condition. But I want to move on to the blessings of mourning as Jesus mourns. We see this in the second half of Matthew 5.4. For they shall be comforted. When we mourn for our condition before God, when we mourn as Jesus mourns with those who are hurting, when we mourn as Paul does for those who are lost and destined for eternal separation from God, we shall be comforted. Comfort is a gift for those who mourn. And like all gifts, we must choose to receive this gift. Like all gifts, we can reject being comforted. Sometimes our mourning is complicated by guilt and shame, regret and anger, disappointment and confusion. And when this happens, we tend to reject the comfort that God is so willingly offering. And what is the free gift of comfort that God is so willing to offer to his children? It's the gift of forgiveness to us. The forgiveness of God is the only thing that can truly comfort the afflicted, the hurting, the grieving, and those who mourn. Just as we saw that being poor in spirit leads to citizenship in the kingdom of God, mourning our condition leads to the comfort of forgiveness. We see this clearly as Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in which he speaks about the sorrow and grief in the very specific terms. What the Holy Spirit intends for us to glean from Paul's letter is that there's a difference between how the world grieves and how God intends for us to grieve. In the second half of 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul tells us, worldly grief produces death. So what is worldly grief? Worldly grief is an expression of regret over opportunities lost, painful present circumstances, or personal embarrassment. As an example, we regret getting drunk on the weekend and blowing the test on Monday, or we're sorry for having gambled away our life-saving at the casino. We feel terrible that the unflattering email that we sent was forwarded to the wrong person. Although we feel bad about all these situations, the regret may have no spiritual dimension to it at all. We may just regret getting caught hurting ourselves, or looking bad. Worldly grief is owing 
to one of two causes, losing something dear to us or the negative opinions of others. Worldly grief has to do with pride, ego, and humiliation. It cares about man's opinion instead of God's. We feel terrible because people around us think that we're silly or we're stupid. We feel sorry for the past because people no longer think highly of us like they once did. We feel deep distress because we love the praises of man and not because we have the fear of God. Worldly grief is not good grief. It leads to death. Because worldly grief does not allow us to see our offensiveness to God, we don't grieve our sin, and therefore we don't get forgiveness from God, the lack of which leads to spiritual death. Worldly grief deals with symptoms and not the disease. Worldly grief produces despair and bitterness and depression because it focuses on the regret of the past which we cannot change or it focuses on present consequences which we can't fully avoid. Ironically, if we say that I can't forgive myself, it's probably a sign of worldly grief either unbelief in God's promises and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, or just regret that it's merely focused on my loss and what other people may think of me, and not my sin before a holy and a righteous God. We hate to look at our sin, but when we refuse to deal with our sin, we are only hurting ourselves. Sorrow over loss of money does not bring it back. Sorrow over personal failure does not make it all better. Sorrow over negative reactions from others does not make them like us again. Does God want us to feel guilty when we are guilty? Yes. But he doesn't want us to feel guilty when we are not. And, we are, and when we are guilty, he doesn't want us to wallow in our guilt and our sin. He wants us to run to the cross, confess it, be cleansed, and receive his comfort. We see this very clearly in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. The prodigal son saw that he had not only made a mess of his life, but he had sinned against his father, the one who had loved him the most and who had given him everything. And when he returns to the father's home, his father ran to him and embraced him, welcoming him home to take his rightful place at the table. This is the result of godly sorrow. Too often we are simply sorry that we got caught, sorry that we have to live with the consequences, sorry that we got knocked down a few pegs in some people's estimation. But godly grief is just so different Godly grief doesn't blame parents or the school or government or friends or the church. Godly grief quotes Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Godly grief sees the vertical dimension of our sin, 
I have a growing concern that Christians are describing sin in categories that really mask its true nature. Sin is not simply a sad thing because it can wreck our lives. It's not just the ruining of our peace. Sin does more than just make God sad that his world is not operating in a way that it's supposed to. Sin makes God angry. It's an offense to God. His wrath is aroused, not simply because we're missing out on his best, but because we have violated his law, rejected his lordship, and made ourselves gods in his place. Godly grief recognizes the utter utter sinfulness of sin and hates it more and more. Once we hate our sin, we're more inclined to move away from it Grief, you notice, is not the same as repentance. Most people think that grief equals repentance. They feel bad about something, and so therefore they're repentant. But notice that godly grief leads to repentance. There is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sin. Repentance turns away from past sins. Truth is that most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience, and bemoan how selfish or stupid or sorry that we are. But we really don't want to change. We don't really want to live differently than we have been. Here's one way to distinguish between worldly grief and godly grief. One mobilizes you into action and the other immobilizes you. Worldly grief makes you idle and stagnant. You don't change. You don't grow. You don't fight against the deeds of the flesh. Instead, you ruminate on your mistakes and you obsess about the most important person in the world, you. That's me too. On the other hand, godly grief spurs us to action, to change, to make right our wrongs, to be zealous for good works, to run from sin and start walking in the opposite direction. That's repentance. And that is where we find forgiveness for sin in Christ. That is the comfort that we truly all seek. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that your word can prick our hearts, that your word, Lord, can move us to see you and understand you in a new and a powerful way. I just ask, Father, that your word would just move upon each one of our hearts. Father, no matter where we see ourselves, no matter where we are, Lord, we are all mourning, we are all grieving, we are all hurting in one way or another, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you would make it clear, is the sorrow that we are experiencing, is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? What is it, Lord, that you desire in the midst of it? Father, we know that, Lord Jesus, you are with us in our grief, 
that you see it, that you experience it with us. But your desire is to lead us out of that grief into a place of comfort, comfort that is found, Lord, when we come to you, when we receive that awesome gift. And so, Father, for those who are here this morning who have not received the awesome gift of salvation in you, Lord, I ask that, Father, they would find themselves poor in spirit and they would find themselves mourning for their own sin. And in that way, Lord, they would come into this kingdom of God as they repent and they call upon your name and are born again. And in that, Lord, they will find the comfort that they seek. And Father, for those of us who are citizens of heaven, Father, I just ask that we would find ourselves in a new place unwrapping your comfort as we know, Lord, that sorrows will come. We will all mourn, but you are with us. And you will lead us through that to a place of comfort, healing, peace, and even joy. And so, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can hear from you this morning give you all praise, all glory, and all honor. In Jesus' name, amen.